Deborah Amos, and you're listening to Counterfeit Crackdown on America Abroad. Joining me now to talk about the problem of counterfeit goods are Professors John Whalen and Chris Sprigman. John Whalen is Associate Dean of Intellectual Property Studies at the George Washington University Law School, and Chris Brigman teaches intellectual property law at the University of Virginia School of Law. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Why do counterfeit goods matter? This is Chris Sprigman. I don't think they matter as much as people say they do. So it depends on what you're talking about. I think things like counterfeit pharmaceuticals or counterfeit airplane parts matter. We don't want people getting sick or airplanes falling out of the sky. But if you're talking about counterfeit handbags, no one ever died from one. Um, and I think, you know, one message that I would try to bring is that the government shouldn't spend a ton of public resources on law enforcement in that area. Professor Whalen, the explanation that's often given in the U.S. is that because our economy is increasingly knowledge-based, we need to aggressively protect American ideas. Do you agree with that? Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. If you just look at the technology that's running this call, Ron, or the iPad you have or the BlackBerry you have, the advance there is not the manufacturing of those products. It's for all the innovation and technology that goes into them. And if competitors were allowed to just take those uh, inventions for free and knock them off, whether in the U.S. you call them infringers or overseas as counterfeiters, it would disincentivize the companies from inventing in those areas and, you know, be totally unfair for all the people that have invented, whether it be a new drug or a new computer technology. Let me, let me ask about developing countries. Do you think that they have a different set of values than the United States when we're talking about intellectual properties? And, and let's start with you, Professor Whalen. I don't know if I'd say a different set of values, but they're in a different situation. Imagine a country that's poor, that, that can't afford uh, good drugs or good technology like we can in the United States. And their choices are, do we get access to them at all, or do we have to pay for them where we can't pay for them? And I think they are faced with a difficult choice there. And I think it is wise for U.S. companies or multinational companies to try to work with those countries to try to help them understand intellectual property, maybe on a different pricing scale, maybe on a different entry-level scale, and to encourage them to invest in their own intellectual property. If you're the United States and you go to a foreign country and you say, don't use our goods, it doesn't work that well. If you encourage countries to invest in their own technology get their own intellectual property. Once they start protecting their own intellectual property, they will start protecting and understanding the importance of it for multinational companies. Examples like this might include India and Korea. Chris Brigman, let me ask you, do ideas need to be protected to foster innovation, or does less protection mean ideas transfer more easily across borders? Yeah, again, it depends. You know, intellectual property has, come a bit, has become a bit of a religion. Every idea needs to have protection in order to thrive. The religion is false. So in the um, area of open source software, you have tremendous amounts of innovation with not only no intellectual property, but a culture within open source that rejects intellectual property, that um, wants the open source software to be spread freely. So lots of innovation there. Right? We have lots of innovation in the area of fashion, in the United States, no copyright protection for virtually any fashion goods, lots of new ideas, lots of new innovations. There are some creative areas that intellectual property is important to. There are some in which it doesn't really do any work, and there are some areas in which too much intellectual property retards progress. And I, and I agree with Chris. I mean, I, I think uh, it's funny we talk about intellectual property as, a, as an area of law, but 
most people don't practice in every single area. It's like calling somebody a doctor. And people specialize in different areas, and we have different uh, statutes for the patent, copyright, and trademark. Uh, uh, we have uh, different sets of rules, different lengths of time, uh, different types of exceptions, like fair use and copyright. So I completely agree with Chris to lump them all together. It really doesn't help as much as discussing you know, the drug technology and patents or the music industry and copyrights. I think that's a, a very fair approach. Can we talk about also reasonable expectations? You can't stop this completely. There are some things you can do to minimize harm, certainly in the case of drugs. But what is a reasonable balance for for other goods? Our reporter, Sean Carberry, went to Ghana, and he saw that they were making strides at their ports, but the land borders are a big problem. And you really cannot close those borders. Smuggling will continue. So what is a level of investment in enforcement to make a you know, reasonable um, enforcement uh, regime? So to, say, to, to know what to say to that, you need to know a lot more about the facts to quantify the size of the counterfeiting and piracy problem. Um, I'm not sure that industry is really interested in gathering those facts because if the facts come out – there's a risk that, well, the, the amount of public enforcement dedicated to you know, interdicting fake handbags at the port is going to be reduced. Because I don't think it's the kind of problem that, say, the International Anti-Counterfeiting Coalition says it is up to $250 billion a year. That's $800 in counterfeit goods for every man, woman, and child in the United States. That number is absurd. And I think the number is much lower. And what we would expect to see is a lower level of public investment in anti-counterfeiting enforcement. I don't think the industry really wants that. Well, I think it, let's assume that number was lower by uh, 10% or let's say 50%. You would still have a huge number. And uh, I agree. I don't think the answer is just in the enforcement. I mean, if you compare it, I don't want to compare two somewhat different things, but you compare it to drugs in the United States. I mean, if you just keep criminalizing it, it it doesn't necessarily enforce it. You have to educate. You have to get people to realize this is not a good thing. There has to be other sorts of penalties in the system. If you look at the copyright file sharing, you know, kids don't have to steal music if they can buy it for a dollar a song. And when you create other options, when you create uh, different choices that are more reasonable for consumers, you start to see people don't take it freely. They're willing to pay for it as long as it's within reason. So I think there are different ways to gradually move people to believe in the system and to understand its importance. Is intellectual property enforcement going to be more or less important in the future? Professor Whalen? Oh, I think more. The economies are moving from manufacturing economies to intellectual property economies to inventions and things like that. And I think if people want to take these at a free license or without paying for them, I think that... uh, the companies are going to be concerned. I think that the countries are going to be concerned if their economies are moving in that direction uh, with other people having easy access to their intellectual property. I mean, what's the difference between somebody taking your product or taking your idea and then making the product? The second is even a bigger concern because then they can just manufacture the product as much as they want, wherever they want. So yes, I think you'll see I think you already see more concern from country, from companies and from the United States uh, that this is an issue and that they want to try to get ahead of. And Chris Brigman. Yeah, I think the trend is going to be that we're going to see more and more the limits of what the law can do. I agree that ideas and creativity are very important, but I think the ability of IP law to actually effectively motivate and protect these things is declining. 
Um, so what I expect to see is the exploration of a lot of other ways that we can incentivize creativity and we can um, encourage its spread. Um, ways that don't have so much to do with the law but have to do with the norms of consumers or, or the norms of producers or the way to construct business models that are more resistant to piracy. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks. John Whalen is Associate Dean of Intellectual Property Studies at the George Washington University Law School, and Chris Brigman teaches at the University of Virginia Law School. been listening to Counterfeit Crackdown, the global fight against pirated goods on America Abroad. Visit us on the web at americaabroad.org to sign up for our monthly podcast and to read our blog, The Dispatch. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Aaron Lobel is our executive producer. Our program was produced by Monica Bushman, Sean Carberry, Mallory Durr, Jordana Gustafson, Ann Kim, and Matt Ozug. Additional production help came from Brett Myers and Yusuf Mistak. Our director of broadcasting and station relations is Steve Martin. Our interns are Ethan Scheel and Brendan Magel. This is the last program produced by senior correspondent Sean Carberry, and we wish him all the best in his new job. Four Piece Suit composed our theme music. I'm Deborah Amos, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. Support for this program is provided by the Stewart Family Foundation, The American Interest, a magazine devoted to illuminating America's global role, and from the U.S. Chamber of Commerce's Global Intellectual Property Center. Support also comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.